Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to Outward. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate. And I want to tell you guys about an app that I recently learned about. As you know, humans are almost all deficient in D. That's vitamin D. There's an app out there called D-Minder that tells you when you can go out and get some D, like when the sun is out and when it's an optimal like D procuring time. Mm -hmm. So it'll tell you, you know, you have three more hours today to get your D. The next time D is available is in 12 hours. So Mm. I just think our listeners are really the prime target for an app like this that tells them exactly when D is available. So, you know, PSA, that's how you know when you can get your D. That sounds extremely (laughs) helpful, Christina. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward. And I just have a very quick, very fruity take for this season of Ostera that we are entering. Starburst brand jelly beans, <laughs> in my opinion, are both the ideal form of Starburst in terms of texture and jelly beans in terms of flavor. So all the other versions are hereby canceled. I made your life simpler. You're welcome. What's wrong with the classic Starburst texture? It's too chewy and it gets in your teeth and it hurts. It does get I don't stuck know. in your teeth. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's that's that. <laughs> and I'm Jules Gill-Peterson reminding all the state legislators and governors out there, don't mess with trans kids, okay? Mm-hmm. You tell them. Yeah. Maybe eat a Starburst. Maybe take a little vitamin D. <laughs> all right. <laughs> this month, we're bringing you two very different stories about the kinds of lives we're able to live First, we're processing developments out of Texas where the state has moved aggressively to declare caring for trans kids child abuse. But the wider assault on trans kids is escalating in serious ways all over the U.S. And while a lot of vital coverage is focused on the legal arguments and the policies involved, we want to ask what a trans kid's life would actually look and feel like over the coming years as a result of these draconian laws and administrative attacks. What kind of lifespan are trans people being forced into in the long run? How do trans kids and the adults they will become live out in the hollow of this political violence? Then we'll bring you the remarkable story of a trans woman who is one of the first in California to legally change her name all the way back in the 1940s, Barbara Ann Richards. We'll speak with Michael Waters, who has a new piece out on Slate, about her fight to change her name and the remarkable lessons of trans people who had a profoundly different experience with the state decades before today's struggles. So today on Outward, trans life confronting state power then and now. 
But first, as always, it's time for Pride and Provocation. So, uh, Brian, why don't I throw it over to you? Sure. So I wanted to address this month something that a lot of our listeners actually sent to us. I believe I believe we all got these emails. Um, and I also saw this thing up in many of my feeds. And so I feel sort of obliged <laughs> to deal with it. It is a piece called The Narcissism of Queer Influencer Activists by Jason Okundaye and Gawker. And this really went viral, I'd say, about two weeks ago before our recording. So I am provoked in a kind of melancholy way by this piece. And I hope that this doesn't make me sound like a grouch. But as I said, I I do feel the need to address it. So the piece itself is, is really well written and I think correct about the problem as far as that goes. And so the problem that it's addressing is that on Instagram, there's this, and you know, Twitter and sort of uh, similar platforms, there's this world of influencers whose skill with queer activisty rhetoric, sort of about like intersectionality and things like that, can disguise misinformation about current events and or questionable politics at the same time, right? And so an example that the writer gives of this from the current war in Ukraine is from this activist and author, Adam Eli. So I'll quote from the article now. In a tweet, which was copied to Instagram, Eli wrote in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, quote, in times of war, marginalized people are always hit first. This includes queer people, especially trans people. Below is a list of organizations that are helping queer people in the Ukraine. The writer of this piece goes on to say this is incoherent. Of course, the Russian invasion has launched an indiscriminate bombing campaign, which endangers all Ukrainians, regardless of identity. But nevertheless, this claim was shared across Instagram stories countless times. So that is kind of like a dumb thing to see on Instagram, right? Like the the analysis here is fair, that queerness is being used as like a, a weird way of covering what's actually happening. But my general feeling about this complaint is like, yeah, gay Instagram can just be really dumb (laughs) like 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 it's great that you wrote this piece and that so many people responded to the piece but like there's just a lot of dumb influencers on instagram and i think it overstates both how important this ecosystem is in terms of people's like understandings of the real world and also what the meaning of alike right like on a hot person on a visual platform like instagram might be Mm. i just don't know that it's that that serious if that makes sense and also and this is probably the part that makes me sound like a grouch just stop following them (laughs) do a purge log off entirely you don't have to engage with it this queer influencer ecosystem and if it's causing that much anguish just remove it from your life i just feel melancholy and a bit sad for all the folks out there who clearly this piece resonated with because they're being bothered by these folks on a daily basis yeah (laughs) am i wrong about that y'all i I don't know i'm like halfway there with you so I agree with you that, you know, who cares if a bunch of people are liking this post? And like, to be fair, if you sort of follow that argument out another couple steps, queer and trans Ukrainian refugees will probably have a harder time. You know, that analysis is actually probably one or two percent valid. Mm -hmm. But the writer made a point that I think speaks to the influence that these kinds of posts can have, which is, you know, if you're funneling donations, if you have a set of queer people who are following this influencer, who are going to make a donation to some group helping Ukrainians, and they donate to, you know, 
I, I forget what exactly the group was mentioned in the piece, but, you know, like Kiev Pride or something, whose main function now is posting about like a romantic spectrum awareness week. You know, is that really the place where funds should be concentrated? Mm. You know, are groups that specifically serve queer and trans Ukrainians the ones that are best prepared in this moment to help refugees or people who are stranded in a war-torn country? Probably not. So uh, so I, I really did appreciate that part of the piece. Yeah, that's fair. Christina, would you like to go next? All right. I'm going to call an audible. All of our sports fans out there will know what I mean. I was going to be proud this month, but then last night I was spontaneously provoked. So I've been reading the book Matrix by Lauren Groff. It was published last year. I got a lot of good press. It is indeed a very good book. It's about a group of nuns living in an abbey in England in the 12th century. <laughs> there's some sex between the nuns, mm. so there's another selling point. It's definitely <laughs> queer, really well written. You know, usually I don't like reading about a book until I'm done reading it because I don't want you know, the author's take to infect my own take on the book. But in this case, I was thinking, you know, wow, is this based on a real person? I want to know a little bit more about the book. Mm. So I started Googling around and I came across this interview that Lauren Groff gave to uh, the Condé Nast Women Who Travel podcast. And she talks about why she wanted to write this book that only contains women characters. If there are men in the book, they're really, you know, barely even mentioned by name. They really don't play into the book at all. She says she was inspired by the Trump era where, you know, these men were constantly on the radio sort of triggering her. And she says, I live in a house full of men. It's so awful. My two children, my husband, there are just too many men. And my friends, when Donald Trump was elected, used to make these jokes about creating our own lesbian separatist island somewhere where we just walk around naked all the time and there are no men allowed. So this is my way of doing a lesbian separatist utopia. Mm. My reaction to that was like, that sounds like something a straight woman would say. You know, there's been this like <laughs> rise of women sort of lamenting their own heterosexuality. And wouldn't mm -hmm. it be so great to just not have any men around and be a lesbian? But lo and behold, Lauren Groff is bi. And that provoked me even more because I think of all people, <laughs> queer people should know better than mm. to think that women are somehow universally kindlier and gentler and sweeter. Mm -hmm. I find that extremely infantilizing. And the explanation or the vision of lesbianism as some sort of utopia where everyone just sort of calmly strokes each other all the time, never gets in fights, never <laughs> harms one another, uh, is just so totally inaccurate and uh, a, a flattening version of what actual, you know, the lesbians exist. Like, we're out here, we're living full and complex lives and having problems with each other. I think the idea, you know, you only have to read Carmen Maria Machado's book for like an extremely vivid explanation of how these kinds of ideas of what lesbian relationships are like can mask actual abuse that takes place in queer relationships. Mm. And the other part of it is, Lauren Groff, you're bi. Like you could have made that choice. And your poor husband, like lumping your husband and your sons into your idea of, you know, men as sort of the mm. prevailing evil today. It just kind of made me sad. And, you know, I expect better from our queer family. 
Well, okay. Do I have a provocation for you on that same subject? So I, I, speaking of lesbianism and theory and practice, I am provoked this month by breaking news reports that Grimes, the the musical performer, is apparently dating, and I have seen the phrase you all use, uh, you know, important whistleblower and trans woman Chelsea Manning, an activist, and, uh, you know, obviously Grimes is the ex of noted American oligarch, Elon Musk. And, uh, you know, there's just been all of this kind of like, I just want to sort of, I don't even know what I'm provoked by, but I guess I'm just, you know, feeling the general vibe on on Twitter where, you know, trans Twitter was just sort of like, oh, what the fuck is going on right now? Like, do we even, uh, we don't have the energy for this. We're fighting right. a war on a million fronts right now. Like, what is this? What is this? You know, and, and all of a sudden we were all like, wow. Well, I guess like Elon Musk's transphobic tweets, you know, have a more specific kind of context than yeah. say that other uh. Scottish billionaires transphobic tweets. But there's also been all sorts of fun games that have come out, which is like, oh my gosh, well, how many degrees of separation do we all have now from <laughs> rhymes? What is the sort of, you know, chain of um, spit custody you know, from makeup to make out in community. <laughs> right. You know, I, I, anyways, you know, I, all I'm saying is I'm just feeling very peaked by it. My antennae are up. I want to know more. And it's a delicious moment of gossip that feels very refreshing for me at this moment. So, so that's where I'm at. All, you know, blessings and goodwill to them, though. I hope that couple survives. Sure, sure. Well, I hope she treats our beloved Chelsea well. That's what I will say. Mm -hmm. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. In the weeks since our last episode, the right has ratcheted up its war on trans youth. Lawmakers in several different states are taking new steps to withhold health care from trans kids, isolate them and forcibly remove them from the support of adults in their lives, and incentivize bystanders to surveil them. In Texas, as you may have heard, a ban on medical treatment for trans youth failed in the state legislature. But Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Attorney General Ken Paxton have directed Child Protective Services to classify health care for trans kids, usually that would be puberty blockers, maybe hormones, 
as child abuse. That means a trans kid whose parents are supportive of their identity would be removed from that supportive home and presumably placed in the foster care system. And all the people a child interacts with who are legally required to report suspected child abuse, teachers, therapists, their pediatrician, they could face penalties if they don't turn in the trans kids they know and their parents. A judge has blocked the order from taking effect for now, but it's already had an impact. Authorities had already started investigations of families with trans kids. A Houston hospital stopped providing gender-affirming care to the trans children on its patient roles. Trans kids and their families, who just last month were leading regular lives, going to the doctor, going to school, have been cut off from their health care and are now living in fear of being separated by the state if they're reported by someone who knows them. And this isn't just happening in Texas. Last year, almost half of U.S. state legislatures considered bans on medical care for trans youth. And in Idaho, right now, lawmakers are considering a bill that would make it a felony with a possible life sentence in prison for a parent to travel out of state to get their child the care they need. Today, we want to zoom out a bit from the initial terror that these bills and directives are generating and look at what their impact might be if they're allowed to stand a trans kid who just got the boot from the hospital in Houston where she was getting her puberty blockers. What might her life look like a year from now, in five years, in a decade? To start off, we are lucky, as it happens, to have one of the foremost experts on the history of trans childhood right here on our show, our very own Jules. So Jules, can you walk us through sort of the immediate impact of a trans kid being denied care today in Texas? I can, unfortunately. <laughs> and I guess I just want to say there's a lot of moving parts to this story. And I think part of the challenge in covering it, obviously, is that bills are entered and withdrawn in state legislatures yeah. and opinions of, you know, by attorneys general are not legally blah, blah, blah. That's important. And, I, you know, I do that kind of legal and political analysis. but. What really feels so important to me about this conversation, and frankly, what has me feeling very emotional about it too, is, of course, the specter is raised always, always, always with trans youth that we're pushing them towards unlivable lives that could become so unlivable that we would lose them and that we would lose them in particular through suicide. Mm -hmm. uh, but part of the horror here is that most kids will survive this. Most trans people have been surviving situations, life situations that I think most people can barely imagine um, for a long time. Like we're very good at doing that. But I think it really matters to think about then the horror here in some ways is living that life, living mm -hmm. that life so constricted and so attenuated. And so that's why I think it's important in some ways to have this conversation, taking one of these, you know, they're not hypothetical kids, you know, some of these kids from today and following them. Let's see where they're going to be, right? And then maybe the one other thing I would just say right off the bat is, you know, there are these kids, right, maybe that were going to this clinic in Houston and now they can't anymore. But that is only one kind of trans kids. So there are many, many more who already didn't have access to the places like that clinic, who didn't, don't have supportive parents, who don't have supportive teachers, who don't have therapists, uh, school counselors, or other adults or peers in their lives supporting them, right? And I don't want to lose sight of them either because they are mm -hmm. now even more cut off than ever. We're never going to reach 
out to and support those kids because now the state is blanket coercing everyone in Texas to investigate, report, and inform on them. But I think if we want to, you know, I think it's important still to deal with the actual policy, right? So, you know, I'll I'll save all of our listeners the particular form of self-harm that is reading these uh, absolutely ridiculous, offensive, unscientific, an incredibly ableist and pathologizing documents out of Texas. I did read them because it's my job, right? And, you know, they have all sorts of actual, just like factual lies put into Mm. them, right? So the specter being invoked is the forcible surgical sterilization of children, right? And of course, you know, allow me to be the first one to say that's not happening. No one would want that to happen. Does it even make sense? That's not what childhood transition is. So where do we start? Where really are we, right? Say you have, you know, a trans teenager who has gone through the extraordinary process <laughs> of figuring out how to come out to their family, mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. to manage that safely, and has the support of their parents or guardians, has the tacit support maybe of teachers at school, school administrators, and is at least loved and supported enough to be at this clinic that now is shutting down. Okay, so where are you? If you had, you know, access to a medication like puberty blockers, right, which simply, you know, put a pause, they do what they say, they just put a pause on puberty, right? And one thing I'll point out, you know, in the background here is like, none of the medical things we're describing today were invented for trans people. They're not exclusively used for trans people. They're actually probably mostly used for non-trans people because they're just like, aren't that many trans kids out there getting access to medical care? So, you know. For like kids who have like early puberties, right, are too like totally. too, too early right yeah yeah for, for example mm-hmm. for example yeah and so like but imagine right if you've gone through the extraordinary all of those series of steps which put mm-hmm. you already in like the one percent of trans kids right and of course they all deserve this but then you've managed finally and your family can afford right to pause puberty so you're not being put through the excruciating experience, which most trans people I could certainly testify to, to the just absolute dissociation and nightmare of watching Mm -hmm. your body change in a way that you have no control over and having to then manage that socially every single day, not just when you're alone, like the way I remember, the only thing I remember about puberty, right, is that like every morning I would get up and I would go into the bathroom, I'd get in the shower and I would stare up through the shower head at the ceiling and think about anything I could think about that I had to do that day. Just lists of things to do, these kinds of almost obsessive thoughts because I did not want to have to remember that I had a body and it wasn't doing what I thought it was supposed to do. And so imagine having gone through all the effort and all of the struggle and finally having the security of time, puberty blockers buy you time to figure out what you wanna do And most kids already then will know what they want to do and having that taken away. So all of a sudden, after like going through so much effort, you're going to be forcibly put through puberty, right? So this is actually a kind of forced transition. It's like a kind of forced transition against will. It's coercively forcing trans kids to experience a puberty against their will, against their consent and against the consent of everyone else in their life. So I think that's sort of like maybe the starting place, right? Is that, you know, in the midst of also having to worry that at any time you could be investigated by the state, you could be taken away from your family, and you could be placed in foster care with a family explicitly mandated to try to stop you from being trans, Mm -hmm. right? And the news out of Texas, of course, is that 
the foster care system, the child protection system has long been utilized this way. Yeah. Children who are pregnant are often placed with anti-abortion activists who will do everything in their power to stop that child, including not giving consent for them to have an abortion, force them to carry a child to term, right? And we also recently learned that kids who uh, were sent to a state-funded so-called refuge for survivors of child sexual abuse actually were being sexually abused by the people Mm. of the state of Texas put in charge of this, right? So not hard to imagine what would happen, right? So in the midst of all of that that you're having to deal with, you're also now having to be forced into puberty, right? So that's just like, I don't know how, I mean, I don't even have, like, I, I can't even fathom that experience as a grown trans woman. I didn't, like, as bad as what I just told you, my experience of puberty was, I cannot imagine the magnitude of trauma that that yeah. entails, right? And so I just kind of like, you know, it's dark, but that is that is unfortunately the starting place that we're in. And then for kids who are younger, right? Kids who, you know, are young enough that, you know, you, you know, like puberty blockers, actually not a ton of kids go on them because frankly, puberty starts pretty early these days, um, generationally. And so it's like often by the time, you know, you're trans and you're able to make it into a clinic, it's really generally often too late to use puberty mm. blockers. And so maybe you're going to start hormones, right? And, you know, again, people have this, this disinformation idea that, you know, you take one dose, right? And all of a sudden your body changes and you can never, right? Hormones are pretty slow. Puberty is slow, right? And mm-hmm. so like the thing about transition is it's actually biologically identical to, to normal puberty. So it takes a long time. That's why like, you don't just like, as I know, trust me, you don't just take one <laughs> shot of estrogen and grow the boobs you want. You have to like, your body literally has to grow them, right? And yeah. like your height doesn't change in one day, your voice doesn't change, right? You don't just grow facial hair. So it takes a long time. But I think what also we have to think about is like all these kids who were maybe hoping, right? Or dreaming or wishing and, you know, about yeah. having access to what will emancipate them to live as who they are and who have been building up that quiet courage to take that risk of telling who they are to the people who have control over their lives. Mm-hmm. Well, what are they going to do now? The message is not only that they can't, there's no clinic, it's illegal. The message is that it's also going to get your parents investigated by the state for child abuse. So, you know, I think those are the two places to start. And I know it sounds really, really dire, but this is just actually true. Like that's where these kids are right now as we speak in the state of Texas. Jules, ever since I think it was our last episode where we talked about some of the other bills that are being advanced now, you know, even closer to being passed in places like Florida. I've been thinking about what you said about the rights that people believe they have over a child's body. And I was thinking about all the other ways all the other rights that a parents, what right does Texas give parents in terms of what they can do to their own child's body? And, you know, if you want to be able to subject them to conversion therapy, for instance, that's legal. As you mentioned, if you want to tell your teenage daughter you're not getting an abortion and I'm going to force your body to endure pregnancy and childbirth against your wishes, that's legal. If you want to prevent yeah. your child from transitioning and make your home so hostile to them that they run away, which, as we know, is a common story. You know, almost half of homeless youth are LGBTQ. That's legal. You can make your home a hostile place for them. But if you want to support them, that's what the state is trying to make illegal. And that's, I think, the hardest thing for me to come to terms with right now. 
Jules, you were on um, another slate podcast, The Waves, talking about this, and you used the term or the phrase, I think, state-mandated abuse. I think you also used the words, something like coercion, about how these bills and laws are bringing all of us into, or all the people you know in that state, at least, into this regime of mandated abuse. Because if we're all made to be these reporters, these sort of mandatory reporters, which is, you talk more about this, certainly in Texas, then we're all like caught up in this thing together of being forced to abuse these kids. One thing I just wanted to add before we continue that in terms of just how just how like dark and creepy this is when you really dig into what people are saying, there was a representative in Idaho where another one of these bills is in progress. Her name's Julianne Young, who said, I'm just gonna read the quote, I see this conversation as an extension of the pro-life argument. We are not talking about the life of the child, the trans child, but we are talking about the potential to give life to another generation. Wow. Young continued. There is a nexus on this issue. So there's a lot there <laughs> that we could unpack. But one of the things is that you, you're not paying attention to the actual life in front of you. You're imagining a future in which you would force that body to be able to give birth in the way that you want it to, to like another. It's it's such a strange, fucked up like way of thinking about the children in front of you. And then also just like, how do we treat humans? And I, I don't know. I just wanted to like add, add that quote to the mix because I think it speaks it speaks to just like the bizarre fantasies that are at play here. We have to listen to these people when they tell us who they are and what they have planned for us, right? And it is uh, a world in which we do not have the right to our own bodies. Yeah. That's the thing is like, you know, at the widest level here, you know, I would say it really doesn't matter what you think about trans kids. It doesn't matter whether you think they should transition or how they should transition or what you, it's irrelevant. Those, those so-called moral questions are irrelevant. What really matters is, do you want to live in a society where the state gets to tightly regulate police and control everyone's mm-hmm. bodies and children don't have any sovereignty over their bodies? People who can get pregnant have no sovereignty over their bodies, right? racialized people already don't have sovereignty over their bodies because of the police. Like, I just, you know, it's like at that point, I really could care less if you have reservations um, about (laughs) trans people's life choices. I just don't want to live in an authoritarian Christian ethno state. But Mm -hmm. so I think there is a way to kind of imagine now, right? Like, so this, you know, this trans adolescent who, you know, I really want to stress again, like most of these kids will survive. I'm not going to accept the genocidal terms in which this political violence is being handed to us and presume that it will be successful. It won't be. Trans people have been subject to planned eradication many, many times in many places around the world. Um, But we have always survived and we will survive this. And so what that means is then what does that life look like? So you have been unable to access any of the healthcare mm-hmm. or social support you needed. Maybe you've been removed from your family, maybe not, but in any case you age out, right? At 18 or 21. But I think we have to think about the, the sort of long-term deferred impacts here, right? So it's not merely the idea that, you know, your life was turned upside down and people tried to extinguish you. It's like, well, did you do, did you have a good time in high school? I doubt it. Mm-hmm. So probably a lot of people would drop out. This is why we have so many, you know, young trans runaways, right? And, you know, it's even being criminalized, no wonder in some states to leave the state to seek care. But in any case, let's say you've made it, 
And then what, right? Like probably not going to have been in a place to apply to college, right? And, you know, I can't believe I have to bring up like FAFSA on on this LGBT (laughs) podcast, right? But like there are all these actual serious questions, questions for young people, right? Who are trying to figure out how they're going to access higher education and how they're going to have any ability to participate in the formal economy, right? Mm -hmm. And so these are not immaterial questions at all. So like, it's why you don't see a ton of trans kids in college unless they have parental support. And I know with you know, I know about this intimately because I teach, you know, at the university level, I know how many college students already are like, well, I'm trans, but like, I can't, you know, I can't be out to my parents. So I have to be really careful because they'll yank my funding. You mm-hmm. know, they won't, they won't mm-hmm. uh, cover my tuition anymore. They won't support me. I don't want to be, I don't want to be totally disowned. I'm just trying to get through this four year degree. That was already the status quo. Right. And so I'm, you know, there's all of that. And then I want to think about, right. Like what this kind of all stacks up to when you enter adulthood. Right. So you've already had to survive the traumatic experience of being targeted from the moment you come out. And also, even if you haven't come out, you know, everyone is trained to look for trans kids everywhere. And if you make it to adulthood, right, you're already um, set up to have had a, uh, you know, you haven't had equal access to education. It's going to be much harder to go to college. It's going to be much harder to get any kind of job, right? Since a college degree now not only comes with a bunch of debt, but also doesn't like in any way, you know, guarantee good, well-compensated employment. And then the, you know, withholding medical care until people, you know, age out doesn't resolve the issue. So then now what do you have to do, right? Well, maybe you could move to a state where Medicaid covers Mm. some transition related care, maybe, but that's not always a bulletproof solution. And so then you're stuck in the same situation trans people have been stuck in forever, which is that transition is a private cost, right? Right. And by privatizing trans people's lives, I mean, you can Google this, like, I was surprised, you know, I was just doing research, right? There are actually a lot of like, news articles that have just costed out how Mm -hmm. goddamn expensive it is to be trans, which again, can testify, I have good health insurance. But I cannot tell you how many thousands of dollars a year I spend out of pocket on things, right? And I'm lucky in that regard. And so it's like, okay, so you not only do you have to deal with the psychological impact of not having been able to pause puberty or go on hormones or get surgeries at an earlier moment, but now you're going to just have to spend, like so many trans people have, tons of your income, sometimes the majority of your income on these things, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why trans people are consistently living in poverty at much higher rates. And then that's not even bringing into consideration all the forms of informal and formal discrimination that can help keep you in poverty, can't access public benefits. It's very difficult to rent when your ID documents don't match up with how you present. I mean, all these sorts of things, right? And so if your ID documents, right, aren't in order according to state dictates, I mean, all of these sorts of things, right, are setting you up for a lot more hardship and difficulty throughout adulthood. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, right, I think the root problem being exploited here, obviously, is that children do not have full civil rights. Yeah. In the United States, children are literally prohibited from advocating for themselves, taking care of themselves, right? They don't have economic autonomy. They cannot vote, right? They are not able to represent themselves in a lot of ways, and they are treated quasi-like assets under the law in some ways. They are understood to belong to other people's authority. But when you finally breach that legal threshold, right, it doesn't solve all the problems. Mm-hmm. You just get to join the rank of trans adults, the lovely long lineage of us having to figure our shit out, right? Um, but I think it's going to be harder. 
I think it's going to be harder for these kids who are coming of age, you know, five, 10 years down the line than it was for my generation or the generations before me, because all of this stuff now was formalized, right? Like a lot of these issues and forms of discrimination in the past were de facto, but they were not official state policy, right? Only very rarely did the state have to explicitly try to discriminate against trans people. It was more like the state didn't imagine there were trans people. And so the challenges could be severe, right? They could be equally bad, but but you couldn't be guaranteed, right? That you would be sort of treated, mistreated. And also there weren't state agencies actively looking for you and trying to persecute you. So I think yeah. as these kids get to adulthood, right? Never mind the burnout, from having to have grown up this way, but also they're going to face a really difficult landscape where they're essentially, what I would say is pushed into the informal economy, which is where most trans people have long had to live. If Mm -hmm. you can't get stable work, what can you do? I mean, you could do sex work. You can work in the nightlife industry. You can work under the table, right? You can work without formal documents. And of course, there are lots of people who have to do that, but it's not well-paid. It's those are sectors that are, you know, easily exploited, often hyper-placed. And, you know, can make it really hard. So, you know, that's, again, I think that's an area where actually like the trans community has exceptional expertise, (laughs) but like, it's not expertise I want to see, like, Mm -hmm. you know, needed more than ever. Um, You know, people should have the option to do whatever they want, but like the idea that like, we're going to, you know, when we kind of talk about like, oh God, we're being pushed back into the 1950s, you know, part of me always wants to be like, well, no, we're not because like, no one was like investigating trans children in the 1950s. That was Mm -hmm. not, but, but the idea of trans people being pushed out of public life and kept in the informal shadows for their entire lifespan. Yeah, that's kind of 1950s. Um, that, but, you know, so there's something really tricky, I think, to imagine that, like, you're also, what you're doing in this moment, right? We are actively harming these kids today, but we're also setting them up for an entire lifetime of diminished returns, an entire lifetime of policing, an entire lifetime of threats and surveillance, an entire lifetime of immiseration. And options, as you mentioned, are the primary things being taken away from these children. Because obviously, passing as cisgender is not something that some trans people are interested in. Not every trans person wants to medically transition. But the fact is that if you force trans people to, you know, develop the secondary sex characteristics that are traditionally associated with a gender they don't identify with, it's every step of their life is going to be harder in situations as simple as, as you mentioned, getting a job, getting housing, being treated fairly when they're applying for government assistance, traveling through the airport, and by the way, more likely to be clocked as trans and targeted for violence on the street. Which I've seen some people argue on Twitter that is maybe the, one of the points of this, right? Well, uh, right. From, oh, from the side, you know, from the from the side of the right, that it's exactly right. that. Yeah, because discrimination is a self fulfilling cycle. So the the more you can marginalize somebody, the easier it is to convince a population that those people are scary and deserve to be marginalized and the more politically popular it will Mm. be to cause them harm. And so the further you can force trans people into the shadows, as you said, Jules, the easier it will be to keep them there because that will increasingly seem like the natural order of things. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It also just seems to me, and maybe I don't, this might be just like too jejun of a thing to say, but like, I think it needs to be said, like the trauma is being like doubled because it's, it's not just that these things, these options are being taken away and this violence is being sort of visited from the state. It's that it's in a moment when possibilities had only just 
become at all like accessible in a lot of places. You would know the time of this better than me, Jules, but I, I feel like some of this stuff has only been kind of around for 10 or 15 years max in terms of real access, like for a lot of people who have the resources and the privilege to do it. And so it's like, you know, kids certainly, and then families have only become aware of that and na- and then it's being snatched away, right? And so like the, the trauma of that just on top of it, it just seems all the more horrible and like mm-hmm. and bad for people's mental health. And just like, we, I don't even know if we can know what that will look like. That is different from a different generation of people, right? And now it, it creates a patchwork system by mm-hmm. which trans communities five or 10 years from now are going to be, oh, you know, I can tell that you grew up in, you know, Massachusetts versus like, oh, did you grow up in Texas? You know, mm-hmm. those inequities that you point out, you know, did you have access to care or not are going to be even wider and even more dependent on, you know, family resources. Were you able to access that care out of state? You know, did you have an incredible lawyer that kept you with your family? That's right. This is one of the things that keeps me up at night and and makes me cry. You know, mm-hmm. I I am so glad that I can, you know, stand here today and, you know, say with the full force of a long ass peer reviewed monograph that trans kids aren't new. Mm-hmm. They've been around. Okay. You can go and go read, read about it for yourself. Right? <laughs> and so of course, all of these states and these legislators are lying yeah. to our faces. Right. But if there is something new, the only thing maybe new about trans kids today is that they have the possibility to live with just a little bit of levity and that they have the possibility to live a pretty broad range of lives as trans kids during childhood and adolescence. That Mm. is different from the kids that I wrote about, right? And I think about this very personally for myself, you know, I think I am typical of many kinds of trans people in that it's pretty obvious if you go back and look at, at my childhood, and I've written a little bit about this in different places that, yeah, pretty clear. You know, I saw a home video of myself, um, you know, when I was like seven and, and I was actually shook because I haven't seen this, you know, since I kind of transitioned and done a lot of therapy and, you know, kind of come out of my own dissociation. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. I'm a girl. Like, I I couldn't believe it. Like, all of the mannerisms with which I'm speaking right now, all of the body language that I'm using, I was like, oh, my God, I didn't I didn't remember that there was such an obvious continuity in my life. Yeah. And, you know, I was lucky. I was loved and supported, but I didn't know what that meant. No one around me knew what that meant in the, you know, late 80s and early 90s. And so I had to wait. You know, and and part of my gambit in waiting and waiting is very risky and waiting has cost me a lot in my life and has caused a lot of pain and has involved a lot of trauma that I've had to, in many ways, I feel like the longer you wait, the more you're risking your life in some ways, because you just don't know if you're going to be able to hold off on what you know you need to do. But I waited into adulthood. And part of why I was doing that was desperately having grown up pretty poor, trying to get into a more safe Mm. professional financial situation. And so I am very unusual. I am a trans woman of color who is a tenured professor. Well, you're not going to find a lot of those kinds of people. And one of the only ways someone from my generation was able to do that, right, is that I waited. I waited to transition until I already had a PhD and Mm -hmm. until I felt safe. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. I managed to pull that off. But I've had a shot at a different kind of life right? A different range of life possibilities and just material life chances. I'm just talking about like, you know, bank account balances that make or break how you live in the world, right? 
And that is something that I feel very lucky, but very rare and atypical to have experienced. And so then I see these kids these days. And one of the reasons that they, I feel so happy for them to be out and be living as trans kids during childhood and adolescence, unlike me, is that that means their range of possibility would be much wider. If they can go to school, if they can go to college, right? It's not to say that they all need to do that. The point is that they're not all being confined, right? And materially impoverished, structurally deprived of access to the basic building blocks of human life as set out in a deeply unequal American society, right? But that, just as that window is opening for the first time, that we would take that away. It's disgusting. I mean, it's, 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 I, I, I truly feel it in every bone in my body, how horrific that is. And, you know, it's not something that I was deprived of personally. I cannot imagine having had that taken away from me. I mean, I just think that there is nothing more callous and hateful than to turn to children who we put in the position of being Mm -hmm. unable to chart their life course for so many years. We create all of the vulnerabilities that they experience. And then to turn that around and use that against them and say that yours is not a life that we value. That is the ultimate thing being said here. We do not value you. We don't think you're a part of this world. We don't think you deserve anything that is understood to be the basic trappings of a life in this country. And I'm not saying it's a great life in this country, but like to say that you are beneath even a shot at that, that's horrifying. And it really, in some ways, couldn't come at a worse time. I am an academic. I've been critical of the kind of paradigm through which the medical community has normalized trans kids. And you know, there are lots of imperfections, but we're not even going to get to have those conversations now yeah. because we are just... Mm-hmm trying to save the lives of these kids in the first place. And there is nothing more destructive to the idea of social transformation than having to go back to the bread and butter. All right. Yeah. Are these kids going to live or die? Are they going to have a place to live? Are they going to have food on the table? Are they going to have access to transition? Those are the things, right? People want, you know, I, I don't, I'm dreading the month of June already because I'm like, how are we going to talk about, you know, pride this year? <laughs> I mean, that's the feeling we've had for a while, but it's like, we want to hold up these trans women of color who fought in the 1970s for what issues? The same yeah. damn yeah. issues. Sylvia and Barsha are trying to put food on the table. They formed the star house in New York city in the early 1970s to take care of street kids who had run away, who had nowhere else to go. And they tried to keep them at home and protect them from having to do sex work as children. And their biggest goal other than clothing them, housing them and feeding them was to uplift them and start a school to teach them so that they could learn to read and write. And so that they could imagine bigger horizons for their lives. Right. Like, And here we are 50 years later. And in some ways, the stakes are even higher because all of those kids that were at Starhouse, there's still tons of those kids out there. They're not the ones who are going to the doctor's you know, office in Houston. Right. Mm-hmm. These are the kids that are not even on our radar today because we have only 
right? Because the, the right wing has fantasized this idea of the kind of middle-class trans child who's apparently being coerced into transitioning. Well, guess what? That child's life is going to be impoverished and immiserated, but so too are all of these other kids. Like 50 years later, I am worried that we are in fact slipping into a more dangerous situation than some of those kids were facing in 1971. Right. And that gives me no pleasure to say that as a historian, because, you know, when I say that it's like based on a lot of reflection and research, like <laughs> that's really severe. Right. And so mm-hmm. I think like on, at the basic level, if we if we care about the idea that, sure, of course, progress is not linear. America is not a story of like marginalized people getting what they deserve. But if we are just on the basic you know, belief here that we're fighting for people's basic right not just to live, but to enjoy the fruits of that life and to have a range of possibilities for being themselves in the world, which I think is queer trans people. That's like one thing we know really well. Well, then this truly is one of the single worst attacks I've ever seen on the very possibility of having that kind of life. And that's the thing that just, you know, I guess I was thinking before we before we recorded today that like, I mean, there's a heaviness I feel like I've been carrying and so many other activists and journalists and, you know, we've been carrying around for a while. And part of it has to do with like, I feel like my heart has been broken Mm. since this wave of legislation started over a year ago. And it didn't just start a year ago, but like my heart has been substantially broken for a year. And that that's hard. It's hard to carry that heartbroken feeling around with you, but imagine a whole lifetime ahead of you of that Mm. heartbreak. I mean, damn, I'm not that old, but like, even I'm, I'm weary after a year and I'm worried about how the next 10, 20 and 30 are going to go. But, you know, some of these kids have many, 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 many more years ahead of them. And so I think as we, as we figure out how to respond and as we understand how our hearts guide us in this struggle, I think on that basic level, this is what we're in it for. This is what we're fighting for. And I don't think there's anything more important to stand up for than these kids. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Jules. I'm glad that our next segment is going to give us a longer view on what exactly trans life was like in an earlier era and how that can help us reframe the way we're thinking about trans futures today. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. 
It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The current tidal wave of anti-trans propaganda in the U.S. and elsewhere takes as a core principle that transness itself is a new phenomenon a kind of identity fad with scary medical implications that should therefore be disrespected and legislated against, and as we're seeing now, even eradicated in children. But actual history shows us that this is simply false. While terminology has changed over time, people of trans experience have always existed, and in fact, the nature and details of that experience compared to the present day might surprise us. For a powerful example, I'm going to read the top of a great new piece in Slate by writer and historian Michael Waters. On July 1st, 1941, a 29-year-old interior decorator walked into a Los Angeles courthouse and filed a request that vanishingly few law clerks would have processed before. As part of her gender transition, she wanted to change her name on her legal documents. The applicant, named Barbara Ann Richards, was a woman, but the state of California still classified her as a man, and her birth certificate listed a traditionally masculine name she no longer claimed as her own. By petitioning for legal status, Richards was doing something radical. When the court eventually approved her petition, she became one of the first Americans to successfully change her name on legal documents following a transition. Yet she has largely been left out of the popular historical record. That's no longer the case, thanks to Michael's piece, which is titled How Barbara Ann Richards Designed and Then Demanded the Life She Deserved. Michael is a freelance writer whose work has appeared in Slate, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and other publications, and he's writing a book about the origins of sex testing at the Olympics for FSG. We're so, so excited to have him joining us today to talk about the amazing life of Barbara Richards and how he brought her story out of the archive and into the world. Michael, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. First, I'd just like to start with how did you find out about Barbara and what drew you to researching and telling her story in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. I do have this somewhat chaotic habit of just searching keywords in newspapers.com, which is this digital <laughs> newspaper archive. Sure. <laughs> Love that. Which, I, like, thank God it exists. I don't know how I could have done this before, like, the digital age. But I had just been searching some variation of phrases around like people changing the like gender marker mm. on identity documents, on driver's license or birth certificates. And just at some point I landed on what turned out to be a series of articles about Barbara Ann Richards um, in the early 40s. And, mm -hmm. you know, one thing that I'd found from, again, doing these random keyword searches is that there were a lot of cases of people who petitioned for different forms of trans people specifically who petitioned for different forms of legal status mm -hmm. and just like recognition in their identity documents, you know, throughout the 20th century. But I think Barbara and Richards really stood out to me just because of the sheer volume of material that existed about her. And, mm. you know, I did that thing where I was so intrigued and then I had to, you know, search her um, and the main <laughs> google.com and see, you know, what people had said about her and just discovered you know, there have been some historians who've like looked into her and mentioned her in their writings, but I felt as if, 
you know, just based on those newspaper reports, there was more to unpack. And I really wanted to just see what else I could find. And, you know, like I pretty quickly like filed a request to see the original court case Mm -hmm. with the Los Angeles County Court and then kind of came together from there. So I just read the top of the piece with Richards walking into the courthouse to file this request in 1941. Could you just take us back a bit and tell us how she got there? What was her story of coming to the moment where she was ready to do that? Yeah, it's interesting. And I do think like one thing about reading her story and her history is, you know, the way that we have it remembered is through what she told the press and what she told the court at the time. And so I think that she was spinning her story in a way that she felt would be most acceptable to most people. So I just want to sort of preface it with that, which is that it's hard to know exactly what her experience was, but I do think she like wanted to have her name legally recognized. And I think she sort of was smart enough to know one path forward. But the way that she described it, you know, like, I guess it's a little bit of context. She's from Massachusetts. She was born, her mom was a public school teacher. And she described in interviews always knowing that something that like there wasn't a total alignment with mm-hmm. her gender identity and her dad really pushed back against that and as did her mom a little bit but over time seemingly her mom especially came to understand her and maybe we get to this but her mom actually testified for mm-hmm. her at um this court case saying you know that barbara had always been a girl been a woman um and acted this way and sort of felt this way an interesting thing about her and the reason that i kind of did that preface is that the way that she described her gender transition to the court and to the press is though she did not like acknowledge that she had always felt this way she described it as this quote-unquote like physical metamorphosis that had happened to her right and so she gives these you know in retrospect kind of funny quotes where she is talking about basically how you know just like one day she woke up and she noticed that her beard, which she used to shave twice a day, had stopped growing and her voice was changing pitch. And then she had, you know, all these other details, these physical details about her body changing, mm-hmm. um, which she then sort of described to the public as creating these psychological changes as well. She described, you know, she changed which magazine she read. Right. And, you know, I, in reality, that was not, it wasn't a total like spontaneous metamorphosis. You know, she had actually been taking hormones for mm-hmm. a while now, but that was how she portrayed her story in the press, which is one fascinating thing, which is, I think she recognized that if she pitched this as something that had just happened to her and it was, you know, a medical mystery and she couldn't explain it, but, you know, she was a woman and she wanted to have her name changed. Yeah. That was the way that she was able to find some sort of acceptance legally and in the public. She definitely seems super savvy about about that aspect. That's one of the things you write about in your piece. How did the media respond to her? What did that look like? And and what is what, what were sort of the headlines that, you know, that you were finding in the archive when you were when you were looking into this? There was obviously a sense of intrigue. And I do think, you know, unsurprisingly, a lot of somewhat sensationalist headlines, you know, just about specifically around this idea of her having this metamorphosis. Mm -hmm. That was sort of like the buzzword that kept coming up with regards to her identity is that the idea that like this woman had had this quote unquote physical metamorphosis and now she was petitioning for some sort of legal status. Yeah. And yeah. And so, I mean, I think that there was that element of it Um, was able to elevate the story so that it was covered, you know, not just by local newspapers in Los Angeles where she filed this petition, but also, you know, the New York Post and some international newspapers as well. And so it was, as far as I can tell, looking at, you know, the newspaper records online, it did seem to be a pretty 
maybe not a cataclysmic media moment, but it seems to be <laughs> the way that you would see in the 50s with other trans people who came forward. Yeah. But it was like a pretty big story for a few weeks in 1941. This reminds me of a book I read a few years ago by Emily Skidmore. It was called True Sex, The Lives of Trans Men at the Turn of the Century. I would highly recommend this book to our listeners. And she, like you, did a lot of her research through old newspaper reports. And I was kind of amazed at how prominently gender transitions showed up in old newspapers. And a lot of the times they were these sort of sensationalized reports. Oftentimes a trans man would be written up. He'd be outed after being arrested or something. I'm wondering why stories like this were considered national news at the time and also what the limits are of learning about somebody through, you know, old newspaper reporting. That's a fascinating question. In terms of why they are written about, I don't know if I'm necessarily the best person to answer that because I haven't done as big of a study as Emily Skidmore did, for instance, on this. Um, and I know other people on this podcast have done. So I'd be interested if anyone else has thoughts on that. I think with like Barbara Ann Richards case, for instance, you can see you can really see the limits of this kind of reporting, of course, which mm -hmm. is, again, she was she was not only being like written about in a certain way, but I do think she had to describe herself and her just story in general along these sort of narrative terms that would be like somewhat familiar and acceptable to people. You know, this is in an era in which in the English language, trans identity was yet to even be conceived of. So I, right. I acknowledge that, that I'm using some of these terms a little bit retroactively. And so I think the limits of this is just that what we see in the press is not only biased by reporters who are probably not super fluent in the nuances of gender, but is also, you know, in order to be recognized and to be accepted to some degree in the legal system, a lot of people had to spin out these stories that might have been true to their experience or might not have been, but it's just hard to it's hard to know. I think that's even true of trans activism in very recent history, you know, and and gay activism, you know, born this way or born in the wrong body. And these are sort of simplistic narratives Frameworks. that are true. Yeah, that that ring true for some people and don't for others. But they're definitely ways to help make the experience legible and maybe acceptable for whatever people have the power to grant or not grant rights and protections. I'm a huge fan of Barbara Ann Richards, and I just love this piece for so many reasons. But I think one of the things that's so exciting about going back to this time period, right, like even before, you know, it's like, on the eve of World War One or the U.S. joining the war effort, right? Like this is a long time ago. It's before Christine Jorgensen, you know, mm -hmm. who was such a famous trans woman in 1952. And, you know, what's fascinating to me is how counterintuitive from our perspective, some of this can sometimes feel, right? Like we sometimes, I think, are invited to bemoan an era where, well, there was no language. There wasn't, you know, the public didn't have trans words to understand people. There wasn't all this recognition and visibility. But then when I look back at this time period, I'm like, yeah, but like, you know, Barbara got what she needed to get and she moved <laughs> on and she did, she was a spectacle and, and the reportage is, you know, a, a very euphemistic and very 1940s, but like she didn't become the subject of 150 state level bills trying to mm -hmm. ban people like her from changing her name, right? And, and I think one of the things that's so interesting then, and I appreciate is that you also put her, like the newspaper archives are, of course, complex to read, but you also put her back in community. And there's mm -hmm. just some really, I think, challenging to our contemporary perspective truths about trans community. This is, you know, in Northern California, in the kind of Bay Area, but 
you know, she's part of a trans community, right? Like she's in a kind of T for T relationship with a trans masculine person that, you know, we still don't know a ton about, but like, I'm excited to see that we're learning more about it this way. She's good friends with one of my personal faves from the era, Louise Lawrence, who is a different kind of trans woman in the era, one who transitioned without any hormones or, you know, any kind of medical transition. So in some ways we know Barbara is an early adopter of hormones, but then, you know, I, I think it's so interesting to put the two of them side by side, right? Like Louise Lawrence had to transition with no hormones. She wasn't interested in that. She was from a bit of an older generation, I guess. And, you know, she kind of had to do everything stealth. Like she got a new social security guard. She got a new passport. And eventually she actually gets caught up in some legal trouble with the state department, you know, mm. over that. Whereas Barbara goes this route, right? Where she does expose herself, right? By being in court, but she's successful. And I'm just sort of curious, Michael, like what's your sort of sense of like how, what, what, I don't, I don't know, maybe not like why was she successful? Cause maybe that's like a legal historian's nerdy question, but like, what, what do you think we can learn from her success? I guess, especially when in some ways, right. What's different today is weirdly enough that like some of the stuff is actually harder than it mm-hmm. used to be, but like, but also today we live in this context where trans people are known in a certain way that they weren't publicly in the forties. And I guess I'm just sort of curious if you could make that bridge for us and give us your sense from sitting with this. What do you think her success in the 1940s, what kind of lessons can we take away from that, that maybe are not super intuitive to the way we imagine, you know, trans people's sad lives in the 1940s? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you saying all of that and have come across your work frequently. So thank you so much. (laughs) So I don't, my, like, my answer to this question will just be kind of like my own small perspective. So do with it what you will. The thing that fascinates me about her story and her experience, like you said, even like finding a trans community later and sort of being accepted to some degree by the public in this period. For me, it's always about just the idea of scrambling this really like you alluded to, like linear notion of, I think, queer history and this idea that there could be like little pockets of trans community, for instance, or communities, um, other other types of queer communities in this period where you wouldn't expect it. And then I also think that, you know, when you think about today, you can just sort of see how, while there were anti-cross-dressing laws at the time, in Barbara Richards' time, um, and there were transphobic laws and infrastructure in existence, absolutely, you can sort of just see that the infrastructure of transphobia and this backlash had to be built up in more recent times, too. Mm-hmm. And so, like I think someone mentioned, there wasn't a lot of backlash, as far as I could tell, to Barbara and Richards. You know, you don't see any laws being passed. You don't see even, like the stray, like, angry editorial or anything like that, because that infrastructure of transphobic backlash to, you know, like, people having access to change their name or gender marker on identity documents just hadn't been built up yet. Um, And I'm not sure what the ultimate lesson of that is, but just, it's, like, sort of a reminder of just how modern a lot of these inventions are. And I think it can be really easy to assume that there's always been this specific type of queer phobia that we see today. And I think stories like this maybe suggest that, you know, I mean, there's always been a queer phobia in some sense, but it, like the specific thing that we're seeing today had to be created and had to be manufactured out of something. I mean, it seems like a pretty recent phenomenon. That's at least my singular take. My take on this is that if we see that 
this sort of organized attack on trans people and trans youth hasn't always been there, then we don't think of it as natural, as like transphobia as natural. It's something that has been created. I think what this story illustrates is the political benefits that come from attacking trans people today that maybe wouldn't have accrued to a politician back then when everyone Mm. sort of assumed, everyone felt safe, everyone who wasn't queer or trans felt safe in the notion that we all think these people are strange and are freaks of nature. And today, I think that consensus is falling apart. And so people who can benefit from transphobia see an in in sort of inflaming that among people who share their own ideas about, you know, traditional family and gender norms. I don't know if that's a lesson that like, I don't think it's prescriptive in any way, but I do think it helps us understand what's happening today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder if this would be different if, you know, there were a lot of highly publicized cases like Barbara and Richards in the 1940s, for instance, Mm -hmm. like the volume, I'm sure also has an impact to some extent. And, you know, I found like there's been like some references, like in the 60s, there were some references to the fact that there had been, you know, a couple dozen or so people who had successfully changed their gender marker up until that point. But yeah, to your point, I do imagine that the reaction could have been different if all of those cases had been very public the way Barbara Ann Richards was. But she yeah. seems to have been one of the few to have transcended local news because you do see this mm. a lot. Right. Um, and Emily Skidmore's book really focuses on this too. You do see trans people and you do see some of these petitions in courts to change an identity document in local newspapers. But just for whatever reason, just whatever confluence of factors, hers was a national story. But yeah, if there'd been more like it, there could have been a different reaction. One of the things I really love about your piece is that we get this encounter with the state that Barbara has, but then you move past that and tell us as much as you can find in the archive about the rest of her life and her relationship with uh, Richard Wilcox, who Jules mentioned earlier. Can you just tell us a little bit about that love story that you've described for us? Because it's so, it's just so wonderful. And it, it really centers these people rather than, right, the the state again. So that was just so lovely. And I'd I'd love to hear you narrate that a little bit for us. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, there's a lot that we don't know and maybe don't deserve to know. I mean, I was a little bit worried doing this research about, you know, like making sure I tried to include only what they were sharing with, Mm -hmm. you know, the public. Um, But yeah, I mean, the two of them met in the late 30s, before Barbara had transitioned, just at a party in Los Angeles. And this was also before Richard had transitioned too. And, you know, they sort of hit it off immediately and pretty quickly um, ended up getting married. They eloped briefly to Arizona because there were more lax marriage laws there and they got a marriage certificate. Richard, from the start, was very supportive of Barbara's transition. He had not yet transitioned himself, and I'm not sure exactly like he doesn't have as much of a record so I'm not sure exactly where he was at the time but he really supported her in in doing this for herself and then he was the one who pushed her in the first place to you know petition in LA County Court to have her name legally changed so I think he is sort of the the figure that we know the least about but maybe was the backbone to some degree of this Mm. story or at least had a, a vital role maybe I should say instead and yeah so um an interesting fact about it is, you know, like you see in court, um, Barbara hadn't actually mentioned that she was married. And there was a very brief period of, you know, like panic in the press when there was this idea that two people who, you know, if Barbara had her permission to prove that two people who would have been perceived as belonging to the same gender same would be married marriage. to each other. <laughs> right. Yeah, it was just kind of a funny precursor. Um, yeah. And then 
Barbara and Richard at least publicly said that that wouldn't be an issue because they were going to get a divorce and legally they did get a divorce. Um, but, you know, like from all the records I, I was able to find, they were very much still together and they mm-hmm. never planned to actually be apart. And so while they were legally divorced for a period of time in the 40s, you see them show up in different places, including in Louise Lawrence's unpublished autobiography, um, which we mentioned a little bit earlier, Louise Lawrence. You know, like Louise mentions that Barbara and Richard were sort of like her entryway into the trans community in Los Angeles. And so Barbara and Richard you know, we're still very much together and very much connected to some larger community about which I personally didn't find, although I'm sure other historians know more. And yeah, so I mean, they clearly were involved in the scene for a while yeah, and had that connection to community. And then, you know, at some point in the 40s, not entirely clear, you know, like Richard too transitioned. Again, there's just a little bit less on him in general that I was able to find. Although, yeah, I hope someone else (laughs) is able to find more. (laughs) Of course. And yeah, I mean, they stayed together. You know, they moved up the coast to Northern California, seemingly end of the 1940s. In the 1950s, they both like continue their transitions. Barbara is able to get a surgery after, you know, repeatedly requesting it. And yeah, I mean, as far as I can find, they seemed like, to have lived very happily together. And, you know, Barbara died a few decades before Richard did. And then, you know, afterwards, Richard went to a hormone research laboratory at the University of California, Berkeley. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when he died, they were buried, as they still are today, at these adjoining graves in California. So that at least suggests that, you know, the relationship continued and was good. But yeah, it's like trying to piece together a little bit from a very tiny record and trying to read in, but that's sort of the best that I was able to read into it. That's fantastic. And I think it just really goes to show, right? Like not just the kind of tenacious way that trans people improvise out of their own individual circumstances and then through community into like really incredible, rich and fulfilling lives. Um, But also then how much just state bureaucracy gets in the way and causes trouble, right? Um, You know, just having to consider these things and having to become this practice at outwitting the administrative state is, you know, I think one of the ways that their stories are really unique. They were able to pull it off in a way that not all trans people were at the time. Um, But I think there's something just kind of like, I don't know, I I guess I always feel like I want to see it with like a mischievous smile and wink attached to it because I feel like there's just this (laughs) sort of like, I don't know, there's this feeling you accrue, right? Where when you have to see the rules and and the norms and the laws through which society is organized and how arbitrary they are because they don't work for you. And then you have to also figure out not just how to outwit them, but how to do so without losing too much, right? How to risk that vulnerability and visibility and then to do it. I just feel like it leaves you with this extra, like, I don't know. It's like, you know, the invisible metal pinned on all trans people's <laughs> chests where we're just like, mm-hmm, I see that. Uh-huh. No, we're not muggles. We've we've graduated <laughs> to the next level. Um, so there's just something so satisfying and, to, and also so sweet about them being buried next to each other. Ah. Yeah. I'm just such a sap for it. It's a really (laughs) lovely story. Our guest has been Michael Waters. And yes, yes, please run, don't walk, to check out uh, his truly excellent piece. Uh, It's titled Barbara Ann Richards Designed and Then Demanded the Life She Deserved. And it is out now in Slate. Thanks, Michael. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, that's about it for this month. But before we go... 
as always, we've got your monthly updates to the gay agenda. Christina, start us off. So the weather's getting nicer. The pandemic is getting better, baby. Um, I've been noticing that a lot of people are out of practice, making plans, going out, meeting people. And of course, the crisis of disappearing lesbian bars and venues for queer and trans people who aren't gay men continues apace. So this month, I want my gay agenda item is not going to be a recommendation of something to consume, but of something to do. I want to encourage our listeners to be the queer party they wish to see in the world. Mm. I've been inspired by the proliferation of dyke nights here in D.C., which is, you know, uh, an inclusive space primarily for people who aren't cis gay men, but are populated by anyone who considers themselves uh, an affinity of dykes, a dyke or a member of an affinity group, I guess. (laughs) There's a dyke night near me that used to be once a month. Now it's happening every week. And another one, another monthly dyke night just popped up a couple neighborhoods away. I don't know if this is the true story behind it or not, but I've heard tell that it was literally just a queer bartender there who was like, I want to have a dyke night and started putting up flyers. My friend saw one. A bunch of us went and like all of a sudden, there you go. You have a dyke night. These are very low key, very casual. Just stop by the bar for, you know, a booze or a seltzer. And unlike the party that I run during the summer, which takes a lot of work and you need to book DJs and blah, blah, blah. This is literally just you say it's going to happen and then it happens. (laughs) And what I'm trying to say is, listeners, you can do this. If you don't have a queer bar near you or you just want more options, you can take matters into your own hands. Literally pick a bar that's friendly, email the manager, ask if they'd be into a bunch of queers showing up on a weeknight, post flyers, make an Instagram. If you build it, dykes will come. I'm getting in my little hybrid electric car right now and (laughs) starting the drive to D.C. See you there. All right. Yeah. See you in 45 minutes. (laughs) Brian, what about you? What's your recommendation this month? I'm going to recommend a uh, lovely little uh, limited series podcast that I just discovered. It's four parts and it's from the Smithsonian's Air and Space Museum. I'm a little bit of an astronomy geek, so um, that's (laughs) that's something that appeals to me. It's called um, Queer Space. And it is, again, it's a limited series that's part of, or it's in the feed for a longer running show called Airspace. Um, And it's it's coming out right now through April 7th. It tells stories, I'll read their little logline, it tells stories as they put it uh, at the intersection of aviation space and LGBTQ history and culture. I just listened to the first ep, which is about uh, gay male flight attendants and the culture thereof in the 1970s. And one of the interesting things that it argued was that uh, part of why so many gay men got hired during that time was that they were the only men generally willing to work for senior flight attendants who were all women at the moment. So there's an interesting wow. interaction of feminism and gayness and and industry there that I that I had not known about before. So the episodes are all about 15 minutes. They're sort of short. The next one that I'm going to listen to probably later today is about the tradition of queer world building and science fiction. Cool. And so, yeah, I'm excited about it. So it's called Queer Space. It's from the Smithsonian. And you can find it in their airspace feed on your podcast app. Oh my God, I want to know what, you know, Smithsonian Air and Space Queer was like. Um, we need a podcast about gay flight attendants. Hello. <laughs> yeah. My yeah. favorite yeah. flight attendants. It's they're they're a little more militant than I expected on the pod. So you'll Love yeah, check that. it, check it out. It's like in a good way, a very good way. So yeah, check it out. 
And Jules, what, what do you have for us? Well, I have a deceptively small recommendation. And, mm. you know, the, the Lambda Literary Awards, the most significant uh, LGBT literary and fiction and nonfiction poetry prizes in the world, all of the nominees for this year's awards were just released. Um, and as someone who has been honored to be a part of that organization and has also enjoyed um, going to their lavish, lovely galas, galas, mm-hmm. really, um, I just want to recommend, <laughs> hey, Stop what you're doing. Quit your job. Leave your home. Uh, Go to a rural place. Go on top of a mountain. Go to a desert island. Just go somewhere. Get all of these books delivered Mm -hmm. to you. And just take the next five, ten months, two years off. And just read. Just get lost. Just get lost in these incredible, incredible books by uh, gay, lesbian, by trans authors. Because you know what? That's what I want to do right now. Um, But you know other things call in the meantime. And I'm told I have to be back here in a month to record the next episode. So um, for all of us who can't do that, but seriously, if you want any kind of recommendation on what to read, pick your genre, pick your type of author, pick your subject area, you are not going to miss if you pick up a Lambda Literary nominee. Do you have uh, one or two particular favorites on the list? I, for very sexy unspoken reasons must remain neutral on the topic of the literary nominees until further notice. So I'll have Uh more to say later. Got it. Love that. (laughs) Quit your job, leave your home. You heard it here first. That's right. And read a book. All right. That is about it for the show this month. Please send us your feedback and topic ideas. As you saw, we covered one today in the Pride and Provocation, mm-hmm. so we do pay attention. Send us your topic ideas to outwardpodcast at slate.com, or you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at Slate Outward. Our dearest Myron produced the show, but sadly, they're leaving us for a great new gig, so we're really bummed about that. But we are so grateful for the time that we've had together and for all of the fancy, healthy L.A. drink recommendations that Myron gave us that we cannot live without. Thanks so much for that. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcast and the grand watcher and keeper of all queer history and futures. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it and rate and review the show so others can join us. Outward will be back in your feeds on April 20th. Until then, bye, Jules. Bye, Brian. Bye, Christina. Bye, Christina. Bye. All right, stay gay, everybody. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.